God for his providential appointment that we would gather here today to worship him, to break bread together, pray together, fellowship together, power in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's great to see you here. I really look forward to what God has in store for us this morning. I, it's been a wonderful time of preparation and study with God and his word. Um, this topic, uh, the scripture passage that we're in in our journey through Ephesians today so applies to every one of us. I just pray that God has great things in store for each of us today. You would lean in, be diligent to listen, be ready and humble for the Holy Spirit to move on your life, on your heart in these things. Turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of Ephesians. Find that towards the back of your Bibles. I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you to church that we'd be regular and uh, in them. Uh, encouraged when I see you do that regularly. You have Bible with you regularly. Take it with you into the restaurant. Take it with you in your car. Be regular in God's Word. Mark it up. Wear it out. It's a great thing. Um, just encouraged. Picked up my wife's Bible the other day and just just chock full of just notes and bent pages and just just such an encouragement to see her truly just spending quality time in God's Word. And, um, yeah, thankful for that. I want that for each of us. Today we're in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 26 and 27, and I'm going to add verse 31 to our work today. Um, we have lots to cover, so I want to jump right in. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice with me right away something that might strike us as odd. Paul is encouraging the saints in Ephesus. God's word is encouraging us here to be angry. He's saying that there is a good and right anger that we should practice. That we should put on. Be angry. Think about that with me for a moment. For most of us, Anger has always been seen as a bad thing, a fleshly thing, a sinful thing. But what we must see today is that while much of our anger that we practice is likely sinful and therefore wretched before a holy God, there is a righteous anger that is good and right and God-honoring. Many Old Testament passages recount the righteous anger of God. God who is without sin, showing His righteous anger against the wicked, and even against His own people when they were so easily and often given to sinful disobedience. Church, see with me this modeled in the New Testament as well. The life of Christ, God the Son in flesh, who is without sin in every way. A few examples we see, a couple things to point to. Matthew 21, 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 5, it says, He, speaking of Jesus, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. We know that Jesus, God the Son in flesh, is without sin. Therefore, this anger is exercised righteously. What makes righteous anger different than sinful anger? The testimony here in Mark 3, 5 is helpful. Look at it with me. He looked around at them with anger, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. His righteous anger was due to grief for the people's hardness of heart. In other words, for their rejection of the holy God and what that holy God deserves. Righteous anger, church, is always targeted at sin and sin's effects in the world. Related to this, God calls us to hate Evil, he calls us to hate sin. Hate is a big word. 
It's not a soft word. See with me the right disposition to sin and evil. Psalm 97.10 O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Romans 12.9 Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor means to detest utterly. Do you detest utterly what is evil? What is sin? To love God, church, to belong to God, to live righteously means we will hate sin. There is a righteous anger that the saved saints should have for sin. If you don't, then something's wrong about your understanding of the gospel. About your devotion to God and His righteousness. Paul is clear to say that we are to put on, to practice, righteous anger. But that we are to do it, clearly, without sinning. Here's where this gets tricky, church. The exercise of hating sin becomes worthless if the anger you have towards it is sinful. Catch that? You must see today the very fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Because I believe that all too often we are guilty of thinking that we are angry in a righteous way. But in the end, we are not. We're undone at that situation. We're unhinged. We're no longer in that moment trusting God. We're no longer acting in love or pursuing peace. We're not forgiving others. We're welling up with sinful bitterness, wrath, yelling, slander, malice. We must see righteous anger correctly. We cannot be guilty of thinking we're acting righteously when we are not. Understand with me, righteous anger is loving. It's even-tempered. It's not self-righteous. See it with me again. Be angry and do not sin. David said this in Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. David goes on to say, Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. See with me that righteous anger is controlled. Righteous anger doesn't justify screaming, throwing stuff. It's not out of control. A way you could think about this is a volcanic mountain. A volcanic mountain expresses anger in two ways. Anger being that bright, glowing, searing lava. Righteous anger is settled. It's controlled in its disposition. This is the settled lava at the base of the mountain. It's controlled. It's not hurtful. Sinful anger is uncontrolled. It's outburst of words. It's uncontrolled in its volume, in its emotion, in its action. This is the exploding or erupting lava out of the mountain. See that it is explosive. It's destructive. Now, what you might be thinking quickly is one of the texts I've already read. What about Jesus driving people out of the courts, flipping tables over? This feels a little explosive. 
We have to rightly see text like this in Scripture as given to us in the text. Let sola scriptura inform our, our, our understanding of the situation. Okay? Especially when dealing with a right view of God. God the Son, Jesus, and flesh. What we can't be guilty of doing is reading what happened and then adding to the narrative, uh, thinking about what happened in a creative way that takes us maybe to a place that wasn't the case. Church, Jesus never sinned. He was never out of control. If you picture him that way, you're picturing falsehood about him. To be out of control is to sin. It's to be unbridled. It's to be upset or undone. But you say, wow, I use that word upset a lot. I would say we use it wrong. Or you don't understand the potency of the word you're using. To be upset is to be turned upside down. It means you have no grounding. It means you have no mooring keeping you fixed in God, full of faith and trust in God, fixed on what is holy. John 2.15. Let's look at John's testimony of this event of Jesus. John 2.15, it says, Making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. See with me that Jesus made a whip. He didn't rush into the courtyard and turn into the hulk and grab a whip and start going crazy. No, he saw what was needed. He prepared the tool needed to right the wrong. The whip was not intended to hurt people. It was to herd them. To herd the animals. To herd them out. How do you herd sheep and oxen? With a whip. If you're going to move people out, people who have a lot to lose, people who are resistant, they've worked hard to secure their spot, to sell their goods on that day, on that annual occasion. This is a big deal to them. If you're going to do that, you need some influence. A whip will help. The second part of the verse says, He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I know, more dire- I know of no more direct way to rid yourself of a person who is addicted to money than to mess with their money. Right? Th- this is what Jesus did. He's taking their treasure and He's dumping it on the floor. He's taking their shrines of idolatry and turning them upside down. He's not doing this in a rage. He's not unhinged. His anger is righteous. He's not out of bounds. He's acting in love and fighting for what is right. Let me ask you, when a father sees his little daughter is about to grab a pot of boiling water and therefore dump it all over her little body, And he's on the other side of the room and only has a split second to respond. And so he raises his voice to grab her attention with hopes that she stops from touching the handle and burning her body. Is he out of line in this moment? Or is he acting in love? He's loving her. When a humble, peaceable, gentle man arrives at his house, and discovers that it has been broken into, and his family is in danger of evil, rape, murder. And so he grabs a bat or a gun to stop their evil attack. Is he out of line? Or is he full of love? It is loving and right to restrain the evil and to protect the defenseless. So when the Son of God is in his father's house and thieves and swindlers and idolaters have set up shop to advance their wicked kingdom agenda and not God's kingdom, is the son right 
to defend what is sacred and holy and to protect the children of God from being taken or manipulated? Yes. While the physical actions of Jesus in this instance are very unique for him, meaning he doesn't get physical in in his other confrontations. Notice here, and in all the accounts of this event, he doesn't get physical with anybody, any particular person. He makes, it makes sense why this scene is somewhat shocking to us, but we need to see it rightly. We need to remember Jesus is holy in every thought, in every action. He's without sin. This means Jesus handled this incredibly sensitive situation just right. He did not cross the line. How we need, church, the discipline of Christ in and through us when we face extreme moments like this. That we too would exercise righteous anger and do what is right, but without sin. And, and, and I know, I know how you're, you're, what you're thinking here. This is really hard, Pastor. I want to exercise righteous anger, but how do I not let it turn into sinful anger? I would say the answer lies in who really is at the helm of your heart. If you are truly grounded in Christ, truly built on the rock, satisfied in Jesus in every way, then you will respond to sin, yours and others, with righteous anger and not sinful anger. It is when our identity, our treasure, our purpose, our joy is hinged to created things, temporary things, we will then easily be undone when those things let us down, and that is when we are guilty of tipping into sin. If you are overclean to an idea of what you want your kids to look like or how you want them to behave, if you are overclinging to an idea of how you want your spouse, what you want her to, or him to look like, or how you want them to behave, if you're overclinging to what you want your boss to look like or behave, or society to look like or behave, and they don't deliver on that expectation, you will be undone and unhinged. It doesn't matter how much you understand in your head the need to be committed to Christ alone. You have to practice it. It has to actually be what you do. You can't put anything else on the altar of your heart. The performance of others in such a way, because when they don't meet your expectations, as good or right as they may be, you will be undone in unrighteous anger. Why? Because when you do that, when you try to share the altar of your heart, your identity, your satisfaction, your joy, your purpose for living, with anything other than Christ, then what you're saying, what you're doing, is proving that Christ is not enough. You might say He is. You might sing that He is. But is He? In evaluating rightly and fully who is on the altar of your heart. Because you try to share that space with anything else, that is what you are now in danger of being unrighteously angry about when it doesn't deliver. You're looking to those things to be your joy, your identity, your satisfaction, your purpose in life, to some degree. So that when they don't perform or meet your expectations, you are upset in an unrighteous way. The thing you want in that situation could be really righteous, but the way you want it to deliver has become central to you in an idolatrous kind of way, and that's why you're vulnerable. You've connected your performance with the performance of others to your joy, to your identity, to your satisfaction, 
and it is not based on Christ alone. And when this is the case, we will then become sinfully angry. Hear it, beloved, when the gospel is rightly at work in us, when our feet are fixed in Christ alone, when our hearts are satisfied with Jesus and all that Jesus is to us, then we will have, and only then will we have, a radical evenness of temper. Paul says this so well in his letter to the church of Philippi in chapter 4, verse 5, Philippians 4, 5. English translation is, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That word reasonableness there is translated in the New King James as the word moderation. In other translations, it's the word patience. The Greek, the intention of that word is your radical evenness of temper. Let your radical evenness of temper be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your radical evenness of temper be evident to all. We only have a radical evenness of temper because of who Christ is in and through us. We must be fixed on Him and Him alone. You cannot try to add any other relationship, experience, engagement to that core. Only Christ. Why? Because Christ is the only one who satisfies unendingly. Everything else you hit yourself to will let you down. Everything else is temporary and incomplete. Paul describes what this looks like for the Christian in 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though, as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. There it is. We are not to check out. We are to engage these things as God has appointed them to us. In such a way that none of them are put on the altar with Christ. And so we love and lead our spouses. We, we engage mourning or victory. We buy goods. We deal with the world as though we didn't have those things. What is that saying? You have to have a right view of this in the shadow, these things in the shadow of the eternal. Only God can give you a radical evenness of temper. There's an engagement that's not an over-engagement. Because when I overcling, when I put my identity, my joy, my satisfaction in any of these things, it, it undoes me. In troubled times, those who are truly and fully trusting in Christ alone are able to say, I'm sad about this thing that happened, but this is not my bottom line. I'm not crushed by this. I'm not undone by it. Because Jesus is my bottom line. And He can't be touched. Do you see that? So it's hard. It might be sad, but there is this radical evenness of temper that you have because you're rooted in Christ. Same thing with great success. When someone is truly, fully trusting in Christ alone, in great success, you're able to say, settle down, heart. This is nice. This is cool. But it's not my greatest joy. This is not the most important thing. Christ is the most important thing. Jesus is my greatest joy. Every wedding I've done, by the grace of God, 
I have said something very controversial standing within inches of the bride and the groom before their biggest crowd of family and friends to make utter war with the idolatry of the moment, to look at that bride in the eyes and say, as wonderful as he is, as excited as you are about this day, he will never be to you what Christ alone will be to you. You have to get that so that you're not over-gripping your marriage in such a way that your identity, your joy, your purpose for living is caught up in it. I saw this with the conception of my firstborn son. He was becoming too central. Our expectations of God, we started to think about God being in our debt to give us a healthy boy. So we started praying, Lord, you've given us today. You don't owe us tomorrow. The baby's in the womb. You don't owe us tomorrow. We want to be good stewards of today for your glory, for your purposes. I would not make an idol of this child. And so if you give us tomorrow, then we'll do that. Do you know what that allowed me to say the moment I laid eyes on Noah for the first time? What burst out of my mouth is you exist for God's glory. I said it overwhelmingly in the room. It just came out. What was that? That was a declaration of war against the idolatry of that child becoming central to my life. His breath in that moment was for the glory of God. And whether or not God gave him another breath was up to God, not up to me. My joy was in God. My hope was in God, not in this child, not in the life I might get to have with him to raise him. What for you is fighting for that space on the altar? Without Christ and His gospel as our foundation, you're left to hope and lean on other things as your bottom line. Instead of experiencing peace, you're filled with worry and anxiety. And when they let you down, you are unrighteously angry. This is how Paul is able to say, whether I have plenty or I have nothing, he has great contentment in Christ. Christian, that is where we need to be. And until we're there, we are struggling with idolatry. And therefore, we will struggle with unrighteous anger. When we're fixed on Christ and don't cling to anything else, we're able to have a radical evenness of temper. We're poised not just then to go through hard times in the roller coaster, you're poised to go through a lifetime of suffering. Because your hope, your identity, your joy is not fixed on the temporary stuff. Maybe that struggle is going to be a lifetime thing for you. And you're not undone by it. And you're not angry about it because you belong to God. You will steward it according to His Word and for His glory. When it gets really hard, you don't throw in the towel. You don't manipulate the situation so it turns out to suit your days better. You are able to endure. And in your enduring, you testify Christ to those who are watching. When they see that radical evenness of temper in a situation where that makes no sense, they have no other option but to see Jesus. You're crazy or they see Jesus. Because that evenness of temper in that situation does not add up in the flesh. And so the gospel is on display. And so we begin to see why the Lord would ordain or even allow real suffering, real hardship in our lives. Because it's in those things by which our days, which are for the display of the gospel, get to be bright in the lives of others. Because our hope, our treasure, is not in this city, in this kingdom. It's in the next. This is a war zone for us. And we wake up and we bleed for the glory of the king we fight for. Jesus teaches the disciples this. We see in Luke 10, 17. The 72 are sent out 
as he's shaping them, he sends them out to say, go put this to work. They come back with joy, it says, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, they are pumped. The demons listen to us in the power of your name. And Jesus is quick to help them understand that they are in jeopardy of losing their grounding in Christ alone in this moment. In jeopardy of pulling circumstantial joy onto the altar of their heart. And if they do that, they're going to be let down. And look, so look what Jesus says in, in, in Luke 10, 20. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What Jesus understands and what he's trying to teach the disciples is, yeah, okay, the demons responded today, but they might not tomorrow. You hinge your joy to that circumstantial thing. You're going to be good today and undone tomorrow. What's on your heart only, what remains in your heart, the only thing you need, your name is written in the book of life. You belong to God. You're His. Your marriage might be great today and terrible tomorrow. Your kids might be awesome today and tyrants tomorrow. Your boss might be kind today and a total jerk tomorrow. Your body might be feeling good today and truly in the dumpster tomorrow. He's saying, decenter that temporary treasure. Stop over-rejoicing and cling to circumstances to be your joy, your identity. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen? Rejoice in the gospel alone. That you belong to Christ. Christian, we must better understand and apply this if we are going to exercise only righteous anger and not unrighteous anger. We must understand our bottom line is not the things or people or status of this world, but our greatest treasure, our true identity, our lasting hope, our purpose for living is Christ and Christ alone. This is holy moderation. It's keeping the main thing the main thing. If this is not your grounding, then the world, when the world is clumbing, let me say it this way, when Christ alone is your grounding, and then the world is crumbling around you, you will claim your victory in Christ alone. And when this is your grounding, and you are on life's mountaintops, your victory is in Christ alone. Radical evenness of temper. So Paul says, be angry yet without sin. It's essential we understand the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. If we don't, we'll be guilty of justifying unrighteous sinful anger, calling it good because we, we believe it's righteous. Church, the sad reality is there are a lot of beatings. There's a lot of verbal abuse. There are too many tirades and lost relationships over sinful fleshly anger that is thought by the aggressor to be righteous. Scripture is clear. We are not to be wise in our own eyes. We are to fear the Lord. We are to turn away from evil. Scripture is also clear time and time again that we can't define or produce our own righteousness. Our flesh is too prone to sin. It's too prone to pride and ego for this. Hear this. Look at me. You've got to get this today. You can't be the source of your own self-righteousness. This is one of those areas where true Christian accountability is necessary so that you are not right or justified in your own eyes, but you have invited another mature brother or sister to check your situation. You need to say, am I out of bounds? Am I... Am I angry in a righteous way? There's too much at stake for me to self-define it. You who belong to Christ, you cannot go at this alone. You are not saved to do this alone. We are to be accountable and we are to lean into each other. It is not only pride but fear of man that causes us to reject 
the idea of inviting others in. Please don't be guilty of this. Your elders are practicing this all the time. To invite each other in. And in that example, I say follow it. We're not asking you to do something we're not doing. You don't get to arrive at a, at a season of Christianity or a level of understanding whereby you just declare, I get this and you don't. Let's pursue Christ together in practice. Now, circling back to Paul's charge to practice righteous anger and why it's important. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Many have read this over the years and turned it into a prescription for efforting to put away your anger before you go to bed. You need to really listen carefully. You can't listen to this halfway or you won't understand what I'm about to say. This verse has been used to help couples seek resolve and forgiveness so that they don't carry a fight into the next day. Hear me clearly today. That's great counsel. It is almost always selfishness, pride, unrighteous anger that causes a couple or two people to stay in a fight or argument longer than needed. In my 21 years of pastoral ministry, I've come to see that it is almost always a sinful reason why two people cannot seek the Lord together and humble themselves to forgive each other and honor the Lord unto God-honoring unity. So hear me clearly. You should effort to not carry discord between you and another any longer than is good and necessary to honor God and to love each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says, for they will be called the sons of God. Not the, the ones who declare they're right, and so I'm going to drag this out for five days until you're just beat down and done. Blessed are the peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9. Romans 12, 18. If it, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, while this is great counsel to effort to not let anger or discord go into the night, hear me clearly, that is not what this verse is saying. <laughs> That's good counsel. Share it with each other. Just don't use this verse to say it because that's not what this verse is saying. All right? No, I just messed a lot of you up. <laughs> Listen to the verse again in its context. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's the anger that Paul has in view here? Righteous anger. So when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, what he's saying is, don't let the sun go down on your righteous anger that is against sin. It is good and right to hate sin. Our sin, other sin, sin against the holy God, it is evil, it is selfish, it is hurtful. It is what required the holy Son of God to die in our place. To not hate sin, to not be righteously angry at sin, is to make light with what stands against everything that we now are in Christ. He's saying, don't stop being angry at your sin. Don't be angry at your sin for a moment and then get loose with it and go to sleep and wake up and forget about it. Don't let righteous anger stop. It's a gift of God to do war with sin until it's repented of and done. It's saying the opposite thing that we've made this verse say for a long time. Don't stop being angry. Even as night comes, let righteous anger continue to do its work. Why? Because we are commanded to be holy as God is holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, 1 Peter 1.16. We cannot be committed to God-honoring holiness if we do not have a righteous hatred for all that is opposed to holiness. 
So don't lose a righteous anger against sin. Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon nails the point when he said, He that thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Savior. I would say today to help us, he who thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Holy God. You cannot claim to be united to the Holy God, restored and redeemed by the blood of Christ, and then turn to a life that makes light of sin. You must hate sin. You must have a righteous anger to everything that dishonors God. To not do this is to become callous, is to become complacent, it's to become flippant with your very gospel testimony. It's to make light of what dishonors God. Don't let that happen. Don't become casual with it. Don't let it near. Don't let it fester. How can we live our days for God-given purpose, which is the testimony of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and making disciples, if we're not going to clearly speak, fully speak, accurately speak about the wickedness of sin and what God is rightly due? You can't testify the gospel and train up others in biblical truth if you don't have a true conviction, hatred, disdain for sin in light of the Holy God and what He's due. In light of the Holy Christ and what He did to pay the price in our place. Instead, when we make light of sin, we spit on the cross. We, 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 the sacred purity of God dwindles in our minds and hearts and testimony. Paul loves his brothers and sisters so much to say, wake up, have a right and lasting anger for sin, and don't let that anger dwindle, soften, or lighten up. Don't let it just be for a moment or even a day. Don't let the sun cause you to be done with a righteous disdain for sin. Keep it up. Keep it going. Again, Psalm 9710, you who love the Lord hate evil. Don't hate it for 10 minutes or for 48 hours. And then be done hating evil. Romans 12.9, let love be genuine. That means let love be without hypocrisy. How is our love in God hypocritical when we don't abhor what is evil? We are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Be righteously angry at your sin. Stay angry at it until it is slayed, until it is put away, until it is done. Don't let up. Don't let it close in again. Don't watch this. This is so big. Please don't get comfortable with just a nice and easy day without it. We're so guilty of that. We want the temporary comforts. And so we'll just kind of slip into another day and kind of just ignore this Holy Spirit conviction laying on our heart, and we just get comfortable with it. And God's hope and purpose is that it, we'd pack its bags and move it out. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then he says in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. When does the devil have opportunity to breed deception, temptation in our lives? Watch this, when you are no longer angry at sin. When you start playing light with sin, you give room for it to fester. You give room for it to become acceptable and normal. This is giving way for the enemy to influence us with deception and temptation. Staying diligent to identify sin, kill sin, put away sin, flee from temptation, be righteously angry at sin is how you don't let the enemy have a seat at the table, a room in the house, an influence on your life or the life of your family. Let me ask again, when does the devil have an opportunity to breed deception and temptation in our lives? Secondarily, I would say when you let anger turn to sin. When unrighteous anger is at work, you give a huge open door for it to wreak havoc in your life, in your relationships, in your attitude, in your stewardship of the day the Lord gave you today. I want to jump down to verse 31 this morning to help us with this. 
Paul speaks here of anger, the unrighteous anger that we're to put away. And he speaks of, it, of unrighteous anger's companions that bring real damage to our life and testimony. Look at verse 31 with me. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice are all related evils. They're variants of sinful anger. They're all based on a sinful emotion or a lack of contentment in Christ. They're fueled by a sinful disdain for others. Most often that gets to a place where deep down inside we want those people to be hurt. We want them to be made look bad. I'm going to feel better about the situation when, when, when you pay a price. And so we look to sinful, self-appeasing vengeance. That's the purpose of these things. Let's break them down. One at a time. I want to start with anger. Anger here means a violent passion. It's, it's a controlled, it, it's an uncontrolled anger that's sinful. It's given to the flesh. Idolatry is producing a sinful response to something. And each of these other sinful dispositions listed here are really the ways that unrighteous anger goes to work in our lives and testimony. Watch. Start with bitterness. Bitterness is unrighteous anger at work in the mind and the heart. It's like a sharp arrow. It's, it's a pungent taste to the taste buds. It's venomous. It's it, to the mind. It's poison. It's it erodes our joy. Bitterness erodes our joy. It's acid that rots the mind and the heart. Let me ask you, what's corroding your mind and feelings towards others? How has the situation happened in such a way where you're turning bitter about it? You're running out of gas to do what's honorable to God. How are you guilty of letting bitterness have its destructive way in your mind and in your temperament? Misplaced affections and an overgrit to things will cause you to have an unrighteous anger that produces bitterness in your life. You must see how paralyzing that bitterness is to your life, to your relationship, so you make war with it, so you purge it from your mind and your heart in the power of Christ. Let's look at wrath. Wrath is unrighteous anger at work in our actions. We're wrathful. It means to burn. Literally, to burn, to, to damage. Your wrath is, is you at work in unrighteous anger. It's destructive. It's violent. Can you recall times where your unrighteous anger turned to violence, turned to destruction? Sinful wrath at work. What about clamor? Clamor is unrighteous anger at work in our volume. It is to get loud. Clamor is to shout and to yell. It's when anger is at work in a sinful way, and so we put on a sinful voice, volume, or aggression. Turn to clamor. Slander is unrighteous anger at work in our words. So we turn to speaking falsehoods, to lies. Deception about others. Slander is, is when we're so sinfully angry, you long for others to be hurt by saying things that aren't true about them. Because you want people to look at them differently. We're so upset, we'll say things that are not true about someone to feel somehow free of the guilt, somehow feel vindicated. So much so that I'm going to make up things to damage their reputation.
Malice is unrighteous anger at work in our desires. It's a sinful intent. It's a longing for a person or a situation. I've become so sinfully angry that I, I hope they struggle, suffer. I hope that they're hurt. It's ill will towards another. Beloved, see that these things are sin. There's no place in the life of the Christian for bitterness, wrath, unrighteous anger, clamor, slander, or malice. I know that there's a lot of toxic, wicked things happening in the world. Are you tuned into those things in such a way where you're, you're over-gripping it? so that now your response to those things is some of these things. I hope they all die. I hope they pay a price for what they're doing. And, 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 or, or you start to, to spew lies or deception. We, we start to, our flesh goes to work. James 1, 19 through 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. What does that mean? It means you're good at listening. Slow to speak. What does that mean? It means you're good at listening. Do you need to speak less? Do you need to listen more? Answer more? Ask more questions. Slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce righteousness of God. The wisest man, Solomon, had similar counsel. Proverbs 29.11 A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. word spirit here means fleshly anger, fleshly emotions, fleshly feelings. Solomon's saying it is wisdom to check our emotions and anger with restraint. Whenever stirred up to respond with unrighteous anger, it is good to slow down, to go to the Lord in prayer, to go to His Word, to invite in a brother or sister in Christ to check you, to be accountable. This is good because left alone to our flesh, you will serve yourself. You will justify the things you're thinking as right, and they're wrong. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. See, when we're only thinking of ourselves, we're going to be quick to speak about whatever injustice or offense that we feel, whatever point we think needs to be made. But when I'm thinking of others, we'll slow down. We'll listen longer. We'll consider how we might better understand their perspective or how the gospel applies to that situation. How many fights have you had with a spouse or a loved one or a close friend Simply because you chose to fire back in your emotions before you really gave the benefit of the doubt or tried to really understand where the other person is coming from. I want to love Jennifer really well here. You know, if, if, a, if a crazy man's running up to me aggressively on the, road, on the street, I might not be quick to give him the benefit of the doubt. Right? I might be ready to respond. But when my wife is approaching me, I want, I want to listen. I want to understand her. I want to love her. Same with a brother or sister in Christ. The counsel of Solomon in the Proverbs and, and James here is for any really relationship. It's, it's going to go better if you'll slow down. 
to hold back immediate fleshly emotions. Listen longer, empathize, aim to truly hear them. Second, slowing down to really listen and give the benefit of the doubt gives opportunity now for prayer. Where you rush to speak, you don't really have time for that. Going to the Word. To consider how the gospel applies to that situation. When the gospel is rightly applied to these situations, we have a renewed perspective. Because while the other party may have really messed up and offended you, the gospel reminds you, watch this, you're no better than them. You were desperate at the foot of the cross as much as they were. And without the grace of the work of God in your life, you're just as guilty as they are in in the same or different ways. It keeps you from exercising self-righteousness. Self-justified responses that look and feel correct and condemn the other person wakes up our, our emotion. Now, it doesn't mean you still don't say ouch or to speak honestly about a hurt or an offense, but you aim to forgive that person first because you've been forgiven. Not because they've earned it. You didn't earn it. You're putting the gospel to work in a way to keep you from moving to unrighteous anger. I want to close this morning by looking at one more place that Paul speaks to this. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Paul says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Church, when we're sinned against... When we sin, we must not look to respond in the flesh. We must not look to enact vengeance. We must be quick to apply the gospel. What does that mean? It means when you're hurt, you're quick to forgive. Forgiveness is the power of God at work in us. It's the gospel that has set us free. When we forgive, we give it to the Lord, and the Lord is just with it. It is Justice is had either on Christ, if that person is Christian, or on them for eternity. That's way bigger justice than whatever you're going to do in the next few moments. Instead, we are to give thought to what is honorable in the sight of others. We are to live peaceably as far as it depends on us. I know, church, that unrighteous anger is a very present struggle for many of us. And I pray that you see with me this morning the absolute need to address this in our lives. There is no place for unrighteous anger to go to work. As Paul says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice, Ephesians 4.31. Church, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4.26 and 27. May there be great growth and transformation in our lives and testimony as a result of our time together in God's Word today. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this time that You've given us to study Your Holy Word, to be helped in our view of this area that we can so easily be prone to failing in, prone to be given to. 
Lord, I deeply pray, as I have been, you know that for those who struggle with unrighteous anger, there would really be a new testimony. There'd be a, a real refining, a real sanctification that the growing testimony that others see in us is that that is the old man. And there's a new man at work. Christ is at work. For those of us who are guilty of not practicing righteous anger enough, that we'd repent of that as well. That we'd have a right disdain for what is wicked and evil and sinful. And that where you're revealing that to us in our own lives, we'd not be flippant or passive with it. We would not let the sun go down on a righteous anger towards that, that we would continue to do business with it in your word and accountability and the work of the Holy Spirit until it's behind us. Father, this is a huge area where if we would grow in Christ and Christ-likeness, our testimony of a watching world would be awesome. And therefore, it is clear to see why you give us this instruction why this is so good for our days, our lives, for our making of disciples of those who come in our path, those you've entrusted to our teaching, our modeling. Lord, let us not be hearers only, but doers. You would do a mighty work in and through us by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.